Let's look at Genesis chapter 2. And um, I decided that I'm just going to read verses 23 through 25. I, I got going this week, and um, we would have had about an hour sermon if I had done all that I was writing. And so we're cutting it in half. We're going to get to Genesis 3 next week. Uh, but let's look now at Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then we read this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to the beauty of all that you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would you invite us into your communion? as you invite us into marriage. I pray, Father, for those that are single in this room, for those that are divorced, for those that are widowed, that, God, you would meet them where they are and you would speak clearly to them through your Word, by your Spirit, into their hearts. That, Father, you would encourage them and you would show them the hope that they have. And it's not a husband or a wife, but it's you. And, Father, I pray that you would come to us who are married, Some of us may be beat up, ready to give up. But I pray that you would show us that that there's power. I pray, Father, that you would take all of us and you would correct our understanding of marriage. That you would come and you would deconstruct all the messages that we've heard that have moved us in a direction away from your model. And that, God, you would build something new. And that we as a body would would live in that and encourage each other in that. And that, Father, you would let the church be the church here. That we would be a body that is naked and unashamed. That we would be vulnerable. That we would carry one another's burdens. That we would seek to know one another and we would desire to be known. And that, Father, we might be the body of Christ in this world. That others might see and hear and come and be a part of what you're doing. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You have given us hope by Your Spirit that when we proclaim Your Word, that You give us understanding and You bring change and it doesn't go out empty or void, but You do something in us. So come now, O God. Help us to think good thoughts. Help us to make good changes. Give us life where there's death. Give us hope where there's hopelessness. Give us life where there's death. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Rachel and I got married when I was 19 and she was a week out from being 19, so she was 18. And uh, suffice it to say that we didn't have a clue as to what we were doing. (laughs) We thought we did. Um, We were naive about love and naive about each other, but we didn't think we were naive. Uh, You know everything at 18 and 19, and uh, we really thought we knew one another. Because we had spent untold hours with each other, um, together and on the phone. That's back in the days when you had a landline. And uh, you actually stayed up at night, you know, talking on the phone. And you didn't want to be the first one to say goodbye, you know. And so you're just miserable and exhausted. You're falling asleep. And, uh, you know, that's what we went through. And we thought we knew each other. 
but you see, we didn't know each other, and we didn't know really what love was, because nobody does going into marriage. In fact, even the person that we knew would not be the same person later. I love what Lewis Smedes says. He said, when I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five have been me. <laughs> the connecting link that, uh, with my old self has always been the memory of the name I took on back there. I am He who will be there with you. I love that. I am He who will be there with you. When we slough off that name, lose that identity, we can hardly find ourselves again. How do you survive marriage? How do you do it well? We didn't know what we were doing. But there was something that we did know that I don't know that our culture today knows and believes. I think marriage and, and the concept of marriage really needs to be challenged in our day, and we need to go back and we need to reconstruct, and that's why we're doing this series. You see, we knew one thing, and that was we both loved Jesus, and that love was greater than our love for each other. And we also, you see, 30 years ago, we still culturally had the perception that marriage was for life. And we were in a church where that was preached and taught, and so we understood that when we get married, that we're entering something that's bigger than us. We're entering something that is going to rule and master us. We're not going to rule and master it. We're committing to one another for life. That's not the prevalent understanding, and I feel a huge responsibility to give us a biblical understanding so that we can get married well and stay married well. And here's what the culture says. Here's what we have to deconstruct. Basically, it's a very self-centered view that says, get married and when the other person is not meeting your needs, then you can move on. When it gets hard, um, even when, when, when you just don't feel like you can go on, you can trash it and you can move on to another relationship. But I think the church, what we have said in the past, is whereas the, you know, the world has a very low view of marriage, our view of marriage is almost impossible. If you hear most teaching and you read most marriage books, you get the idea that if you aren't experiencing living relationship with Jesus through another person, then something's wrong with your marriage. If your spouse is not manifesting, you know, this perfect love to you, and, and y'all aren't experiencing this, you know, this, uh, this amazing thing all the time, then something's wrong. And friends, that's just wrong. The Bible gives us a better view. It's more realistic than the culture, but more hopeful than the church. It says, the purpose of marriage is not to serve you, but to serve God. The purpose of our marriages is not to serve you or me, but it's to serve God. It's something that we look to God to and with. It's not something that we just look to Him to say, you better fix this so I can be happy. 
It serves God ultimately and not us. It's a lifelong struggle towards something real that cannot be broken down into five steps, but must be fleshed out, pressed toward, however imperfectly. It will be marked by failure, but failure that moves us towards something better, that moves us higher up into God as we cry out in the midst of our pain, as we cry out to Him for help. And it changes us in the process to be someone better for God and others than we would have been if we cut and run or we never entered it. It's tough, but it's a glorious tough. It's heart-wrenching. You can't do it alone. But it's irreplaceable. You see, marriage cannot be manufactured. I feel like the church has given us the idea that we can just manufacture a marriage. And there's this one image of marriage out there, and every marriage, you know, we all need to be experiencing the same things, and everything needs to be ordered the same way, and that's just not it. You see, marriage cannot be manufactured, it has to be created. It's a work of art, if you will, and it's unique. Think of it like this. If we brought in a hundred artists today and we put them all over this building and we put a, a, an easel and a canvas in front of them and said, all right, I want you to paint a house. Now, every one of those would create a house that would probably be discernible if they were true artists, okay? Or maybe if they were true artists, it wouldn't be discernible. I don't know how you look at that, but let's just, for sake of uh, illustration, let's say that, you know, we told a hundred people to produce a house, we would be able to tell that there were a hundred houses, but they would all be different. There'd be different shades, different colors, different shapes, different sizes, highlighting different things. It would be unique, it would be its own, because that's a work of art. That's marriage. You see, what I want to push on you is that you're, you're not trying to fit your marriage into a mold of, of the preacher and his wife. Or the mold of whoever, Billy Graham and his wife. Or he... No, you are creating something that is absolutely unique. It's you and the other person in God, a man, a woman in God. And y'all are creating it. And if you've ever painted, you understand that painting is messy. I mean, if you just go in an art gallery and you see a painting, you see a finished product. There is not a finished product this side of heaven. Every... Marriage is just a canvas on an easel and it's still being created. And you need to think about it and look at it like that because that makes it beautiful. You see, every artist has a bad day or a bad season of painting. But what keeps them going? They have the end in sight, the finished product. Dear friends, are you in a tough time? Don't stop painting. Have you lost hope? Keep painting. Keep going. It's messy and it's long term. Believe something beautiful is going to come along because indeed it's not just you and the other person, but it's God that's at work. Let's flesh this out a little bit this morning. So what I want to do. I mean, it, all I want to do this morning is I want to paint this picture. And you may not get a lot of takeaways this morning. But the whole sermon's the takeaway. Because all of us has a, have, a, have an image of, of marriage that is unbiblical. And so, if we all walk out of here, not with five points that we can go work on, 
But with a comprehensive overview of what we're moving toward and what God has designed marriage to be, then we have, we've succeeded. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. Let's look at it. First of all, we need to understand that marriage is meant to be a lifelong relationship in which two people lose themselves only to find a better self as they struggle toward oneness. Marriage is meant to be a lifelong relationship in which two people lose themselves only to find a better self as they struggle toward oneness. I hear today that people don't want to get married because, you know, and if they do get married, then they're going to, they're going to protect themselves so they can't lose their identity. Then don't get married. The day that I said yes that I would be the husband of Rachel Reeves, my identity changed radically. I am not Richard Reeves when I meet you. I am Richard Reeves who is married to Rachel Reeves, who's in a covenant relationship with Rachel Reeves, who is covenanted together to be glued to her, to live as one. Therefore, every relationship I've had from that point forward has been shaded and governed and driven by the fact of that night when I said, I do, I do, I do, I will, I will, I will. And so when I meet another woman, I'm not just Richard meeting another woman. I'm a man who is married, who is glued to the hip to another woman. When I meet another man and they want to go fishing or they want to go here, whatever, I am never just me, I am always we. My identity has radically changed. But it's that identity and that willingness to, to not be me but we that has grown our love over the years. You see, we've grown beyond staying on the phone so long that we're miserable, but we're just too embarrassed to say goodnight. And that's a good thing. But we've grown because it's we and not me. Of the last 30 years, I've been a college student, a seminary student, an assistant pastor, and a church planner. I've been a father to one, a father to two, then a father to three girls. Uh, we've moved. Rachel has lived with me in Raleigh. And she's lived with me in Olive Branch and Germantown and Jackson, Mississippi and Fort Collins, Colorado and downtown Memphis. Eighteen different times we have moved around. We have seen more change in each other than we could possibly talk about here tonight or this morning. For several years, I thought there was nothing that could hold me back. You put a wall in front of me and I would go through it. I had confidence off the charts. In the last several years, I've struggled with anxiety and even bouts of depression. <laughs> There's some days where I, I think, surely God got it wrong and I'm not the guy to be leading these people. I've never thought that early on in our marriage. We've lived through the death, suicide death of my brother, uh, the estrangement of Rachel and her father and his death. We have lived life. We have hurt together. We have rejoiced together. And it has changed us. And through it all, there's one constant thing. Through all the different houses and all the different towns and all the different relationships, there's one constant thing. And it's Rachel Hayes Reeves. 
And that's what God designed. We're in a covenant relationship together. We see it in Genesis 2.24. This is the first covenant. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is, this is God making two one. This is God commanding that when you come together, you're not dating. I'm not making a few other choices for you to kind of figure out. But here it is, the, the first arranged marriage, the first marriage, and it is an arranged marriage. And God says, you come together and you love no matter what, you live as one no matter what for the rest of your lives. And do you understand that that was a long time for Adam and Eve? 930 years. You say, yeah, but it was the garden. And God made them. They were naked and unashamed. Yeah, and they also experienced something a little bit tragic in their relationship. The fall of humanity. And they didn't get over that for 930 years. I don't know that they ever were learned to really trust each other again. Can you relate to that, married people? Oh, I'm struggling. I just don't feel like my husband or my wife really... We'll get to that next week. They had no leg up on us. They simply had a covenant agreement. So what is a covenant? A covenant relationship, the marriage relationship, is one in which both sides are bound to the other no matter the consequences for life. This word cleave or, or be united, um, the old translations, probably the King James says cleave, leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. It means glued together, it means attached, it means sewn at the hip, it means they become one person. And that's how we have to think, that we are one with another person and we are bound by God. Not by our feelings or circumstances or the direction of the wind, but we are bound by covenant faithfulship or faithfulness. Marriage is framed by a covenant commitment to love and live as one with another. This relationship has really taken a hit in our day. And yet, friends, though we try to change it, you see, every culture, every generation has tried to, to, to change the covenant relationship of marriage to fit their own understanding and their own particular circumstances. And God says, no. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Today, that just sounds too claustrophobic. We need our personal freedom. I'm telling you, that's our flesh talking. That is sin talking. Because we are made in the image of a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, one God. That's how we were created to function. Therefore, we can rage against it all we want. We can change the rules. 
We can sleep together. We can live together. We can change up who can get married gender-wise. We can do anything we want to. But the reality is we are made in the image of a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And if we aren't moving toward community, deep community, and that's what marriage is... It's not the only relationship where we can experience change. And we've talked about that. Don't think that I'm exalting marriage and saying that if you're single, then you're, you know, you're irrelevant or you know, you're not important until you get married. Listen to the other sermons we preached over the last couple of weeks. That, that's not my point, but I'm focusing on marriage this morning. And what marriage is, it's, it's, it's a place to experience the Godhead, that for which we've been created. And because we're sinful, we need a lot of work. And it's really hard. Well, marriage has been attacked in our day. And if you listen to the... um, If you just watch TV and and read the books for today, you think that, um, why would anybody get married? Uh, But listen to this. Tim Keller in his book wrote this. He said, All surveys tell us that the number of married people who say they are very happy in their marriages is high. About 61 to 62 percent, and there's been little decrease in this figure during the last decade. Most striking of all, longitudinal studies demonstrate that two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out there will become happy within five years if people stay married and do not get divorced. Those bad days of painting and those bad seasons of painting. Wait on the Lord. Wait on God. You see, sometimes it takes some lonely, dark days and times and seasons and years for God to get done in you what He's seeking to do in you. And I say that by experience. He also writes, Children who grow up in married two-parent families have two to three times more positive life outcomes than those who do not. God knows what He's doing. The institution of marriage is good. Why is it? I think especially in the fall, it's good. Especially in a fallen world. Why? Lewis Smead says this. He said, what we're doing in marriage is we're creating a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. I mean, we need that as human beings. We need it. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be there. When I go home at night and I'm seeking refuge from the world, I mean, Rachel doesn't have to be perfect for me. She just has to be there. And I'm sure it's the same for her. Now, do we want each other to be perfect? Yes. Do we need to be moving toward perfection? Yes. But the institution is right and good. Marriage is coming together and saying, I'm yours and you're mine for better, for worse, for life. And it's in that relationship that you struggle and you fight for what He can do in and through you. It's messy and it's hard and it's irreplaceable. It's just so important to get this understanding. If we're single or if we're married. And here's what I mean by that. It's important to get this if you're single. Because I fear that many single people, especially in the church, are not getting married because they're waiting to find Jesus. 
And, and I mean that. I mean, they're way, they, they receive this perception from, from the church itself that marriage is this just high, you know, pie in the sky, by and by, Lord and June, uh, Cleaver, or, you know, whatever. Um, this, this little image of perfection. And read the Bible, read Genesis chapter 3 and tell me how we get that. It's not that. And so, if you're looking for the, the perfect person, you're not going to find them. And if you do, be afraid. Because you're going to wake up the next day and you're going to see the real person. So my wife tells me, I guess. And if you're married, let me stress this. And I'm going to play this out in a minute personally for Rachel and me. But if you're married, don't look at somebody else's marriage and think, well, if we're not like that, then you need to be more like him. You need to be more like her. No, God has given you each other. You're painting a picture for you. Are there principles? Yes. Are we going to talk about them? Yes. But don't try to press your, someone else's story into yours. And don't let somebody else do it to you. God is doing something and He's seeking to do something unique in you. So let Him do it and don't give up on God. And secondly, and finally, I don't know how I can preach a two-point sermon, but I'm doing it. We are made or created for covenant relationship. No, I'm sorry, I did add a third point. Ah, I knew I couldn't do that. I did it early this morning. Old habits. Um, that's real short. So, we are made and created for covenant relationship. It's what we're made for. Uh, Rachel is giving her testimony at a women's event in a few weeks at another church. And she gave me permission to share a bit of it. And I want to re- read this to you. She writes, I want to confess to you that ministry life is hard. Ministry is one of the most taxing vocations out there. It's one of the high, it has one of the highest burnout rates to prove it. And every bit of the burden Richard feels, I feel. It's Rachel talking. Ministry is physically weighty. It beats up your body. The schedule alone is exhausting. It's evenings, early mornings, a 3 a.m. emergency, and you name it. It's not confined to an office or even a building. It's in your home and everywhere you go, even on date night and weekends. One Christmas, the girls and I spent a cold hour and a half in a car outside of Methodist Hospital while Richard visited someone who was dying. Full-time ministry is emotionally weighty because we do it from our hearts. It's not a job you turn off at the end of the day. My husband walks through life with people, good and bad. And at the end of the day, I walk him through life. Have you ever wondered who the pastor's pastor is? It's his wife, she writes. Amen. Even when he doesn't think he needs one. It's her job to encourage, counsel, pray for, and speak the gospel into his life. Those words connect with me. I didn't, didn't see this coming. I didn't cry when I was preparing it. Um, <laughs> Those words connect with me on a level that I just can't communicate. 
because, not because we've had a perfect marriage, but because of just the opposite. <laughs> you see, I have watched this woman make our family, and in a lot of ways me, her true north under God. She hadn't got caught up in the ministry. She hadn't allowed ministry to be an adulterous affair for her, even though at times it has been for me. But she has said, this is my family and I will die for my family and these are my covenant, this is my covenant relationship and these are my vows and I will stay true to them. I've watched this lady when uh, we didn't have money for the girls. They wanted to be cheerleaders and so she had garage sales and she made the money. She made curtains for people. She learned how to sew and made curtains for people. She never complained. She never put pressure on me. She was at home and not going to a lot of the stuff because she knew that the best thing she could do for her husband and her children was to create a solid, safe environment in which to live and come home to. And she's taken grief for that by the church. She's loved me at my best and loved me at my worst. She's been a counselor when I'm too hard on the girls. <laughs> a covenant relationship that is bound by agreement, not feeling, commitment, not circumstances. This is marriage. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, in marriage, it's the covenant that sustains the love, not the love that sustains the covenant. This doesn't sound very romantic in our day. But I want you to know, you can't know passion and romanticism outside of covenant. Sure, you can drink yourself and, and get yourself worked up with lust enough to have a passion at night, and maybe a passion at six months. But what you have in marriage, when you've committed yourself, you know everything there is to know over the last however many years you've lived together about a person. And you have, you've been to war with each other and, and you have fought the outside forces and, and you've fought battles and you've faced demons and you've overcome them. It has drawn you together because you have an experience that, with that person that you don't have with anybody else on this planet. And so, romanticism and passion is heightened because this is a person who I just hadn't convinced for a night that I'm good enough or hadn't convinced for a night to, quote, love me, or six months. But it's someone who has seen my worst and stayed with me and said, yes, I still take you. You can't get that any other way. Why? Because God made us for this. Something happens when we enter the marriage covenant with another person that is beyond and above us as human beings. We see it. If you've ever seen me do a, a, a wedding, um, and, and you, probably any wedding you've seen, um, the, the couple answers two sets of questions. One at the end is the, the vows that they're making before God and to each other. But the very first set of questions is the vows that they're making not to the minister. They're facing the minister. They're, they're side by side. They're not looking at each other holding hands. But they're side by side, and the minister... 
uh, is asking them this question, and I do it with the father still in between them, if he's there. And I say this, I ask this, will you have, whoever, to be your wedded wife or husband, to live together after God's ordinance in the holiest state of matrimony? Will you love, comfort, honor, and cherish her, and keep her in sickness and in health? And will you forsake all others so long as you both shall live? Now, that is a covenant not to the other, but to God. And do you see what's going on here? You're inviting God into this relationship, and you are being melded with God, and so this is your relationship. You, 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 are, you are committed to God, and that's what keeps you in the hard times. As we were worshiping this morning, I've been thinking about marriage all week, and I was, I was having a hard time keeping it together because of God's goodness expressed to me over 30 years of marriage and keeping me there and keeping Rachel there and giving us amazing times, amazing experiences, experiencing love in ways we, we would never have experienced if, if God didn't bring us two together. And you see, Rachel's love for me has been my hope, not because I believe that she would love me on the day we married, but, but because I believe she would love me on our last day, too. You see, that's what marriage is. It's not just committing to love. It's not just a, a declaration of your love for somebody on that night. But it's saying, I love you today, and I'm going to love you 50 years from now, if that's how long God gives me. I'm committing to this under God. Till death do his part. That's home, dear friends. Tim Keller said, "As home is not a place, but it's a relationship. And that's so true. First and foremost with God, but made tangible through a relationship with another person over the long haul. You see, when, when you hear the word faithfulness, and you've been married 30 years, you have a category for it. When you hear the word love, when you hear the word forgiveness, when you hear the, uh, the, you know, the, the term long-suffering, you've got a category for it. You've got, oh yeah, yeah, here it is. So you're getting to know God as, as you're getting married. <laughs> and then thirdly and lastly, we must have covenant relationship with God to successfully covenant with one another. So marriage is a lifelong commitment that's not heaven on earth. It's some taste of heaven on earth, but it's not heaven on earth. Sometimes it can be hell on earth, literally. Because I believe hell has everything to do with relationship and relational separation. I'll save that for another day too. So how in the world do you do this? Where's the hope? Well, when hikers hike like a 24,000-foot mountain, they can't do it alone. They've got to put on some oxygen. <laughs> They've got to have some life support. And when I say that you can't be bound to another person for life without God, I mean that. Because it will drive you to the point where you need life support. Um, and we have one. His name is the Holy Spirit. And John refers to him as the paraclete, the one who hears the cry. 
And when do you put on the oxygen, oxygen mask? It's when you can't breathe. So when does the Holy Spirit meet us? When we can't love. When we can't forgive. When we are facing those old habits that we simply not only don't want to give up, but can't. And we need power outside of ourselves. We can go to God and He can intervene and He can make us different over time. And that's the hope that we have. Listen to John, excuse me, 1 John chapter 4. We read this. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There is no fear in love. Look at the garden. Adam and Eve were hiding. I can't wait to get into this next week. But Adam and Eve were hiding. They were so driven by fear. There is no fear in love. See, they didn't feel accepted. They felt judged. They felt condemned. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. I'm scared if you know me, you're going to get rid of me. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And then listen. We love. How do we love? Because He first loved us. You cannot love a spouse unless you know the love of God. Because you've got to be getting it from somewhere else. It doesn't originate just from inside of you. I mean, on those days or on those nights when you feel like the other is meeting all your needs and everything, the stars are aligned, yes. When she comes out and, I mean, she's got that dress on and, I mean, it's just, you're, oh man, you know, yes. But in the day in and day out, when she is showing you your sin in relationship and your idolatry, it gets ugly. And you need help. And ultimately, it's not the pastor or a counselor, it's Jesus that you cry out to and you say, come in here. And make me different and give me the power to have the humility to move toward this person. Why? Because you have moved toward me. And if you've moved toward me and you've loved me and all of my sins, surely I can love this other person. You see, God is in the worst marriage in the history of the world and it's with you. And He is the faithful spouse. (laughs) So get in that marriage first. And start drinking that in. And then you'll have the power and the humility to love somebody because if God can love you, surely you can love somebody else. Dear friends, I love that we have the table before us today because this table says, you sinned, you cheated on me, and I died. (laughs) You gave me your worst, I give you my best. This table says, the worst, the worst thing you've done is not the last word. Jesus is the last word. Dear friends, may we strengthen our relationships as we draw near to Jesus. As we confess Him to be our only Savior, not our spouse. And as we confess Him to be the true lover of our souls. Let's draw near to Him. If you don't know Jesus, would you come to Him this morning? If you've been trying to do your marriage outside of Him, come to Him this morning. Just come to Him this morning wherever you are. (laughs) 
Drink and eat His love. Meditate on it and believe it. And then go love and forgive somebody else. Lord Jesus, we thank You for marriage. We thank You for the church. We thank You, O God, for all that You're doing in and through us. Bring us to Your table to eat and drink in a way that changes us, O God. Meet us at our points of weakness and our lack of faith and help us to believe more. We believe, but help us in our unbelief. Oh God, would you convince somebody this morning that this is the only hope that they have and the only power that they have. And would you humble them. May they come and just bow before you and receive you humbly, confessing their sin and receiving your grace. And Father, we thank you so much that you are ever present with us by your Spirit, through your Son and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.